Jesus changes everything, every part of our lives, whether that's suffering or our relationships or our work, success, whatever it might be. How does Jesus change everything, every part of life? That's what we've been looking at. And tonight, Paul's going to continue in that topic. I'm going to continue in that topic with Paul. And what we're going to talk about is this. The Philippian church was one of the most mature churches that Paul wrote to. You can see that based on the content of the letter. It was one of the churches that he had a special affection for. He uses phrases and things in there with that church that he doesn't use with other churches. I don't know if you know, you're, he's playing favorites or not, but he had a special affection for them of the different churches that he started. And yet he still warned them about several different spiritual dangers that could be present in their life. And that's true. I mean, whether you're the most mature church or the most mature Christian, there's still several different types of spiritual dangers that can be present in our lives. And Paul's mentioned several of those different kinds of things. There's a lot of different types of dangers in the life of a church that, and in just in the life of a Christian that, that we need to look out for. Some of the things that Paul mentions are false teaching. And so he talks about people that he refers to as dogs, mutilators of the flesh. And that's kind of people that are legalistic, that want to create all these different rules in order for us to have righteousness instead of having it in Christ. And we talked about that several weeks ago. He talked uh, a couple weeks ago, he mentioned people that he calls enemies of the cross of Christ, which is almost the opposite of legalism. It's people that have their minds set on earthly things, he said. But tonight, he's going to talk about relational problems, conflict. And this is something that is perhaps the most damaging thing that can happen in a church. False teaching is horrible, and legalism is horrible, and worldliness is horrible, and all of those things. But some of the most damaging things that can affect a church, that can ruin a church, or just our own lives, is the relational problems that we experience, the conflict that we experience. And this is what Paul is going to deal with tonight. And as we talk about this, I want you to think of all the different types of relational conflict issues, all the different drama that gets created in relationships, that it would be important enough that Paul would address that in this letter. I mean, there's so much that the Bible has to say, whether it's gossip or slander or bitterness or anger or backbiting or division or just all sorts of things that encompass relational issues. It's something that we all experience, whether it's in work or family or marriage or friendship or church or all of those combined. It's, it's something that we all experience. We all have relational issues, conflict, problems, whatever it might be. So how do we deal with those? Where do they come from? How do we get out of it? That's some of the stuff that Paul is going to help us see as we look at this. And and maybe you're not in any conflict. Maybe you don't have any relational issues right now. But Paul is going to speak to both those that have relational issues and those that know those that have relational issues. He's going to talk to both. So I think that probably encompasses all of us in some way or another. And at some point, we're all going to be those people, whether we are today or not. So let's look at what Paul has to say. Uh, we're going to look at Philippians 4, beginning... <laughs> the very beginning of it, okay? 
Somebody told me that I never say what scripture we're looking at. So I'm like, hey, open your Bible and here we go. And then, you know, so here we are. Philippians 4. I said it. Um, Here's what Paul says. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. So the first thing we have to look at is just this, the reality of conflict. The first thing we have to see is that there's conflict in the church. This is something that oftentimes uh, people don't like to talk about. And yet all relationships have conflict. All healthy relationships have conflict. If there's not conflict in a relationship, that means either somebody doesn't care. It means they're being dishonest and suppressing their desires. It means it's a very beginning relationship and there hasn't been time for conflict. It might mean that it's an abusive relationship where one person is always just suppressing their desires for the other person. But all relationships, and particularly in the church, because it's composed of relationships, have conflict. All relationships have conflict. And sometimes people look at the church, and I don't know where you are today. Um, I know where you are physically. I don't know where you are in your emotional, spiritual state today or what your past background is. But sometimes people look at the church and say, man, you know what? I've been hurt by the church. I, I came out of a church and it was just filled with conflict. And so I'm out. And so the reality of conflict within a church is sometimes one of the reasons that people pull away from the church or pull away from Jesus altogether. Sometimes this is something that keeps people from coming to Jesus is they look and they see, man, when I look at the church, I know people that are fighting, they're gossiping, they're slandering, they're, they're, they're doing all, they're hypocrites. Yeah. I mean, because the church is composed of people and people have conflict and people have issues. So the first thing we just have to look at is the reality of conflict. This is one of the things I love about the Bible is it's just honest. It's honest about real things. I mean, Paul mentions, and we'll get into this, but he says, hey, these two ladies are fighting. Just kind of throws it out there. I mean, there's, it's just honest. The Bible's honest about the real problems and the real issues that we deal with as real people. That's one of the things I think gives us a reason to trust It's not trying to sugarcoat things. It's not trying to hide things. It gives us an honest perspective into reality. So I think that's the first thing we have to look at is just the reality of conflict. And we don't know exactly what's going on with these two women. We don't know exactly what they're fighting about, but but we know these things. We know it's serious. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't have wrote about it to them in the letter. Right? So this is how much of the New Testament is written. It's particularly the letters that Paul and Peter wrote in the church. They're called the epistles. They write these letters to churches, and then those are read in front of the church. So this is a big enough issue that Paul feels, hey, I've only got a few pages on my scroll to write this, and I'm going to mention these two ladies fighting. So we don't know exactly what's going on, but we know it's serious. We know it's something public because it wasn't like they were having, it's not like Yodia and Sinki or two roommates just having a squabble and 
someone kind of said, hey, Paul, they're fighting in the room. I heard them. Uh, talk to them about it. I mean, it's, it's a public thing that people know about. It's something that probably it has been going on for a while, something that um, maybe you could even imagine Yodia on this side and Sintki on this side, and they've kind of got their followers because it's a public issue that's affecting the whole church. And we know that it's probably not any sort of moral or doctrinal issue that they're fighting over, but it's opinions and preferences, which is often the case. The reason I say that is because oftentimes people wrote Paul and asked him questions. Hey, what do we do about this? Is this right or is this wrong? And he'll address those things. If it was some sort of false teaching, Paul would have taken a side and taken a position like he does in other letters and said, hey, this is wrong. Let me just settle this right now. Who's right between you? But it's not that. That means it's something that is a preference issue, an opinion issue, something that both of them kind of feel strongly about, their preferences, their desires, their wants, that is then kind of snowballed into this public issue where they're probably getting sides, they're probably asking other people to listen to them. I mean, all, you, you know, I mean, all the different things that come along with relational issues. We usually don't contain those to ourselves, right? Maybe a passive-aggressive post on Facebook People that do, you know, without tagging anybody. I mean, it's, it's those kinds of things that they started to get their sides based on their preferences, based on their opinions. And this is often what happens in relationships, often what happens in the church. I knew a pastor that told me his church shut down. He shut it down because he just was done. He couldn't, he couldn't do it anymore. He said, you know, I just... I'm just tired because of all the relational issues. And a lot of it was preference-driven stuff of people just with their own opinion, their own preferences. And he told me, uh, he told me this story just to kind of illustrate the point that he was making to me was there was this guy, and I don't know, I can't remember all the details, but this guy that he had told about Jesus, that had become a Christian, that um, I think he baptized him, I think he did his wedding. I, think, I mean, he was super involved in this guy's life. And this guy was a very active part of the church and all of this. And then one day, this guy, I'm sure out of a good place in his heart, decided, you know what I'm going to do for the pastor? I'm going to build him a giant pulpit. So he built him this giant thing that, I mean, it's like this big. And just left it there for Sunday for when the guy would show up. And he was kind of like, well, that's not really my, th- I'm more of a music stand guy. I don't know if that's kind of my thing. And so he didn't use it. And he told the guy, hey man, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to use that. I really appreciate that. The guy left. Didn't, didn't want to talk about it. It was just, hey, this, you're, you're hurting me. This is something that I want. This is something. It's not a, he didn't say, hey, you're a false teacher. You don't believe the Bible anymore. You don't love Jesus anymore. It was, hey, you know what? I want what I want and you're, you're not letting it happen. That's a lot of times the issues that affect relationships our relationships. That's a lot of times what happens. So we don't know exactly what's going on with these ladies, but I just want to point out that there is conflict. We all know that. We all know that conflict is a real part of the church. So, so what do we do? And what's the, what, what are some things we can do in the middle of conflict? We'll never know if my PowerPoint doesn't work. Um, first is this. Paul starts with saying, Therefore, which means he's referring back to everything previously that he has talked about. 
He talked about our citizenship being in heaven. He talked about the fact that we have been saved by Jesus, that we belong to Jesus, kind of all these different things that he talks about. And then says, therefore, based on that, and then gives this instruction to the church, to these ladies. So here's the beginning point, that what Paul talks about, that who we are can't stop in our mind, it can't stop in our notes, it can't stop in our heads, that it actually has to flow into our lives. So Paul begins with, hey, I've told you about Jesus, I've told you about my example, I've told you about all of these things, therefore, let's see that now work itself into your life. He's not telling them anything new with the different things he's going to speak to them. It's, hey, therefore, because of what I've told you, do these things. So let's look at some principles for conflict, for relationship issues. And and this is not the final word. This is not everything that can be said about conflict and relational issues. I've written or preached about some of this stuff before. So if there's pieces that you're like, well, what about this and what about this? Then ask me and I can kind of direct you to some stuff or other resources that are out there. I mean, in particular, I'm not going to talk about confession and forgiveness, which are really important pieces of conflict. But I want to just look in the text and see some of the things that we can look at. Of What do we do? We've all got relational conflict issues. Paul says this is one of the things to watch out for in your life. So what do we do? Let's look at some things that Paul gives to us. Ten things. First is this. The first is to name it. To name that there's an issue. I mean, Paul calls it out. And a lot of times, even as basic as that is, we don't do that. We have a growing internal bitterness. We have a growing internal frustration. A growing internal anger. But don't actually say, hey, there's a problem. Sometimes we just walk away. We don't actually name that there's a problem. We just escape it. Just walk away. I mean, it would have been very easy for Yodia and Sinki, even as the letters being read in the church, to go, oh, I'm just going to leave. I don't even want to deal with this. I'm going to go out the back door. No one will ever see me again. A lot of times we just escape or we avoid talking about something. We don't actually name, hey, there's a problem there's an issue. This is one of the, whoa, this is one of the, the keys. Are you able to bring that back? Sweet. Um, this is one of the keys to change in anything, okay? Whether it's business or relationships Whatever it is, just naming that there's a problem is one of the key ways to, to lead to change. I was talking to a guy this week uh, that's a pastor, different guy, and he was telling me about, um, he's a part, I won't you know, name all the stuff, but he's a part of a, a, a group of churches that for the past several decades has just been extremely declining, closing, I mean, kind of almost done. And at their national conference, uh, there's a new director And he said, you know what? There's a problem. We're not doing well. We are not a movement anymore. They refer to themselves as a movement. We are not a movement. And this guy that I was talking to was really encouraged by that because unless you actually name, here's an issue, you can't even really begin towards change. So one of the first things that we see from Paul in relationships, um, 
is <laughs> that's hilarious is nothing is name it <laughs> second thing is the correction is loving see paul corrects them paul paul corrects them and yet many times what is your response to correction somebody corrects you on something And as we go through all of these, think about these in your life. Think about where does this apply to my relationships, to my life, whatever it is. Some of them maybe stand out to you more than others. Think about all these things. But many times when we're corrected, we don't want to hear that. We don't want to talk about that. And yet Proverbs in the Bible says, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Which means this, sometimes we say, you know what, I don't want to correct someone because I think it would be unloving. But Proverbs says, actually, you're hiding your love if you don't correct someone. Proverbs also says that faithful are the wounds of a friend, which means if someone really loves you, sometimes they will say things that are uncomfortable, say things that that hurt. If they do that all the time, they're probably not a friend. That's probably a jerk, but correction is loving. Correction is loving. Sometimes we look at correction, though, and we say, this is kind of the popular way that we dismiss correction. We say, don't judge me. Or we feel like, I don't want to be judging. I was talking to someone this week that has some issues and said, man, I don't want to be judging to that person, so I don't want to tell them about that. Well, that's not what judging is, though. See, the Bible does say not to judge, but when the Bible talks about not judging, it doesn't mean I mean, Paul would be guilty of it, right? Yodi and Sinki could have stood up and said, Paul, you're judging me. Yeah, I am judging you in a sense. Judging the way the Bible says not to do it means a self-righteous spirit that wants to correct others, that wants to put them in their place just to kind of feel righteous. Not because you love them, not because you care about them, but just to puff yourself up. Or it's condemning people and saying, hey, you're done. There's no hope for you. But we can agree. I mean, God has made judgments and we can agree with those. I mean, think about this physically. If you went into a doctor and the doctor said, hey, you've got leukemia. And you said, don't judge me. We would think, what? No, he's telling you you have a problem. And he's right. Because he's appealing to physical health that he knows about. But can't that be true spiritually? Isn't there spiritual health? Well, there is if there's a God and he's made things and he's purposed things. And sometimes the reason that people don't like this idea is because it's been done wrong to them. Because we just have to be honest that correction can be loving, but people can also correct you as a jerk. They might even be right, but they can still be a jerk about it, right? And so sometimes we've had bad experiences with that where people have said things to us and we've gone, you're not loving me right now. And they're not because their attitude is poor. What they're saying might actually be helpful, but their attitude is all messed up. So sometimes I think we have a hostility towards correction, towards judging, because we've had bad experiences with it. And I I understand that. I sympathize with that. That's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's correcting them but he's doing it because he loves them. So, correction is loving. Third, respect. And this goes hand in hand, really, with the other one. Is See how Paul sets this up? He says, Therefore, my brothers, 
whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. I entreat Yodia and Sinki, stop fighting. See, he, he starts with respect. That's where Paul begins. He says, I love you. I care. And this isn't just business talk of, hey, I'm going to put a little bit of compliment, then the hard stuff, and then another compliment. That's not what Paul's doing. He's, he's being genuine. He really loves them. He really cares for them. I mean, he's shown that throughout the whole letter. And he's saying, I love you. I care for you. You're my family. He even says about them, you're, you're co-laborers with me in the gospel. Like, we're, we're in this together. I'm for you. And we've got to talk about something. But respect, that makes all the difference. See, because without respect, what happens is we just objectify other people. They just become an object that's in our way. See, if you think about the last time you had conflict, or if you think about conflict just in general, what takes away respect is that we dehumanize the other person. They all of a sudden just become this object that's in our way. They're a tool to use or to move. They're an obstacle to get out of the way. We're no longer viewing them as, you're my family. You're, you're, you're someone I love. You're someone I care for. You're someone made in the image of God that God loves, that God cares for. You're someone that, if you're a Christian, you're someone that Jesus died, that God died for. That's who I'm in conflict with. But that switches in our mind and just becomes, you're an object, you're in the way, so we start calling them names, or we, do, we, we demonize them, we, we think the worst about them. I mean, just all of these things where we all of a sudden forget, man, you're, you're someone worthy of value and respect and care. We have to remember who it is the people we're talking to. So naming the problem, correction is loving, respect, forth, is talk to the person. Again, seems simple, right? But how often when there's an issue do we talk about the person instead of to the person? How often when there's an issue do we talk about the issue maybe in generic terms like I don't know what was going on with Yodia and Sinki. Yodia sounds like Yoda's wife. I don't know what her name is. No one does anyone ever met someone named Yodia or Sinki? If you do, I'd like to talk to you about that, just because um, it'd be funny. But probably no one's going to name them that after these, right? But if you want to be like a really cool hipster that no one's ever going to pick the names, then go for those ones. Okay, so um, think about this. We talk about the person instead of to the person, or we talk about the issue. Here's what I mean by that. Let's say Yodia um, was somebody that, uh, you know, spent... I don't know why they were fighting. Let's say Yodia really wanted all the stained glass windows and Sinki said no. And then that kind of escalated into this big conflict. So maybe Sinki says, you know, people that don't like stained glass windows, I just don't understand that. She's not talking, hey, I'm not talking about Yodia. I'm just talking about stained glass windows. We do that sometimes. We don't actually talk to the person. We don't even necessarily talk about the person. We just talk about the issue. You know, not naming any names. I'm just saying, you know, that kind of thing. But talking to the person, I mean, that's just a, a good step. You've got an issue with someone. You've got a conflict with someone. Talk with them. And a lot of times people don't 
want to talk to somebody because they say, you know what? Nothing's going to change. Nothing's going to change. And here's the truth. Maybe it won't. I don't know. Maybe it won't change. But here's what I do know. I know that sometimes the reason that we should talk with someone is for their benefit, even if nothing changes. Maybe it's just to love them. Maybe it's to correct them. Maybe it's to help them see something that they're blind in. And maybe nothing will change at all, but it's an act of love in their life. Or maybe nothing should change. You should change. And so we sometimes don't talk to somebody because our fear is, well, nothing's going to change. It's useless. Well, maybe it will, maybe it won't, but love still guides talking to the person. Okay, next, two faults. It's rarely just one person's fault, right? Or you might think wrong if you're in conflict right now, but it's rarely just one person's fault. I love that Paul says, I entreat Yodia, and I don't know, let's say the guy's reading the letter, you know, and he's, I entreat Yodia, <clears throat> and, and Sinki's like, yes! And then, and I entreat Sinki, and oh, you know, and names both, he names both people. It's rarely just one person at fault. It's rarely just one person that, now look, there's times that that's the case. There's times that it's clearly one person's got issues, especially in abusive cases. I mean, that's present. But most of the time in normal relationships, in normal conflict, both people have issues. And here's the thing, the the cross, what Jesus did on the cross gives us the humility to say, you know what? I don't know where I've got issues, but I'm sure I've got them. Sometimes if my wife and I are in a conflict and the, you know, rare five year, every five years that that happens, um, and, uh, and I'm slower to confess that there's an issue, I will literally be, I know, man, I, I don't know that I, I don't know what my issue is, but I know I've got one because I just know that most of the time people, and I'll ask God, help me. I must be blind. I must got issues. Help me know what my issues are. Because rarely is it just one person's thing. Rarely. That's a really important piece of conflict because most of the time we think it's them. It's their deal. It's their fault. But the cross gives us the humility to know I'm a sinner. Man, if God had to die, if I'm so bad that God had to die for me, then there's probably something going on with me right now that's leading to this. Um, I was on a jury, was on a jury case, and they they're selecting the jury, and you know the whole legal system is innocent until proven guilty, right? I, I, has anyone ever done jury duty before? It's a fun experience. Very uh, makes me very. I hope I never get arrested. It makes me very scared of our legal system. But they asked, so they're asking all these different people questions and all that, and they asked me. Well, no, they asked everybody. Does anybody in this room? not think that this guy, and he has been accused of like coming into this girl's room with a knife and, and um, attempted murder or assault on her, okay? Menacing with a deadly weapon. And um, they asked, does anybody in this room not think he's 100% innocent? Because you're supposed to walk in there thinking innocent until proven guilty. And I said, I don't think he's 100% innocent. 
I'm, and I didn't preach. I didn't all of a sudden say, well, let me tell you about Jesus, you know, but, but I, was, I, don't, I don't think anybody's 100% innocent. I was like, there's obviously, no one just grabbed a random guy off the street and brought him in here. Something must have happened. Um, so usually there's something going on, okay? I thought he was guilty, but they acquitted him. We acquitted him. I fought against him. Okay, another story. <laughs> um, next thing is this. Blindness. Blindness. This is similar to what I was saying, but it's interesting. Paul says, hey, help these women figure this out. Why would they need help? Because so often we are blind to our issues. And in fact, I would say this, probably some of the greatest problems that you have, some of the greatest sin issues, sin struggle, probably some of the greatest ones you have, you're not even aware of. To you, they're just normal. To you, they're just your personality. To you, they're just who you are. But we're blind. We need help from other people because we don't see our spiritual condition clearly. We just don't. So many times, we're blind. We're also prone to minimize our issue and maximize the other person's issue. We're blind to our stuff and very 2020 on the other person's stuff. community issue. Isn't it interesting that Paul is writing this to a whole church? How would you feel if we did that same practice? So I was talking with some of you this week, and let's just name some names. Okay, so you, picture on the screen. Here's your issue. I saw you did this Facebook post here, and I'd like to, I mean, that's very, you know, culturally different from what we would do here. But it's a community issue. See, a lot of times we just think, this is my issue. This is my thing. This is something I'm dealing with. But nothing in the church is an individual issue. Now, I'm not saying you stand up and tell everybody your stuff, but people should be involved in your life because it affects the community. Nothing only affects us. Here's some ways that that happens. One of the ways is that it spills out from you. So if you've got an issue with somebody else, that even if you say, hey, you know what? I don't need anybody else involved in this. It's just my thing. It's going to spill out of you. You're going to start gossiping, slandering, bringing people in on your side, all that kind of stuff. Or maybe not. Maybe you hold it all in. But here's what it does. It robs of the positive that could be taking place. See, the conflict between Yodia and Sinki robbed love that they could be sharing with one another. It robbed a greater witness to show people what God's love is like in the community. See, the Bible, one of the metaphors the Bible uses of the church is a body. So if you think about a body, if I break my leg and my leg says to me, maybe it's the medicine, but my leg says to me, hey, it's just my issue. Well, not really. Because this leg is having to work extra hard now. My back's probably in pain. I probably have a headache. When I get in bed, I can't just kind of jump in. I've got to use my arms more to steady my... I mean, it's a whole body issue. See, Paul brings the community into this because our issues are interconnected as a church. It's a community issue. Which leads to this, and I mentioned this, 
But oftentimes in conflict, in relationship problems, we need help. We can't do it on our own. A lot of times a third party is needed. Paul is telling this to the whole church, so he wants them all involved. But he also says, true companion and Clement, get involved in the situation. I mean, we need help a lot of times. And I was talking to someone this week. I was talking to a lot of people this week. I was talking to someone this week. And, um, and he was telling me, you know, I don't really want, he's been a part of the church for many years, but not this church, part of the church for many years, but said, you know, I don't really have any Christian friends because I don't want people in my life. I don't want people holding me accountable. I don't want people speaking into things. I don't want, some of it was he didn't want that because it's none of their business, but some of it was he didn't want that because he felt like, man, I should be able to do it all on my own. So it can be either thing. But Paul's showing us here that, man, many times in our conflict, in our issues, I mean, I think this is just a broader truth in general in our life with Jesus or life in general. We need help. Can't do it by ourselves. And when we try to, what happens is we usually hold these things in or we white knuckle through it. We try to get through it. And then all of a sudden, it seems like all of a sudden to the rest of us, boom, marriage ends. Boom, friendship ends. Boom, gone from the church. Boom, something crazy. Whatever else. More booms, okay? That's usually kind of how it goes down because we we try to say, this is my issue. It's none of your business. I'm keeping it to myself. Paul says, no, bring other people into it. I mean, he's reading it publicly, but he's also saying, let other people in. Let other people into your life to help, to help you figure it out, to help you work through it partially because of some of these other things, the blindness and the faults. Next thing he says is this, let your reasonableness be known to everybody. And that word reasonableness is translated different ways. And some people say that one of the best ways to translate that is simply just graciousness. That it's a, it it includes in that word, this disposition that says, I'm not just fighting for myself. I'm not just holding on to my preferences and my wants and my demands and my things and how I think things should be. I'm opening that up with a spirit of graciousness that says, that might say, you know what, even if things are, you know, even if we disagree, let's go with your way. And Paul talks about that elsewhere where he says, in this letter where he says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others to be servants, to have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ. He talks about those different types of things, that reasonableness is this attitude, it's this heart posture that says, you know what, it's not all about me. It's not all about just what I want, how I think things should go. It's an open-spiritedness, an open-handedness, a graciousness, setting aside our preferences for the good of the whole, for the good of the church, for the good of the community, for the good of the other. And finally, the 10th thing of what we can do in conflict is this, that we need to recognize it's a God problem. See, he tells them, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Sintki to agree in the Lord. To agree in the Lord. He doesn't just leave it at skills. 
He doesn't just say, hey, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Sintki. Work on your communication skills. Compromise. Learn each other's love languages. That's not where he leaves it. He says, I entreat you to agree in the Lord, which is to say, hey, let's, let's, let's have God a part of this. See, here's the thing. Everything in our life is first a God issue before it's a person, an interpersonal issue. It's always first an inter-divine issue before it's an interpersonal issue. Everything horizontal first comes from the vertical. Everything in our life. If we're unloving to others, it's because first we're unloving to God. And so Paul says, look, I want you to agree in the Lord, which doesn't mean you both have to have the same opinion, but it means to have this spirit centered on Jesus, which creates love, which creates humility, which creates service. It's meeting together in Christ. Everything is first a God issue before it's anything else. Do you know that? Do you believe that? I mean, in your conflict, do you see, you know what, this first is stemming between me and God before it's stemming between me and this person. So here's 10 things of what we can do in the middle of conflict, but, but what's the way out? Those are some things to kind of just get us thinking, but what's the way out? What's the solution? What, what's the way out? If you're in conflict now, if you know those that are, what, what is the way out? Here's what Paul says. He gives us a couple things. He says, the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. Now first, what that's doing is similar to the last point I made. It's just bringing God into the middle of the situation. He's saying, stop just looking down. Stop just looking between you and the person. Stop just looking at your concern. Let's, let's look up. Let's bring God into this. Let's bring Jesus into this. The Lord is at hand first just means let's bring Jesus into the middle of this. I mean, here's a question. How does Jesus affect this part of my life? That's a question you should ask about every area of your life. Always, whether that's work or marriage or relationships or vacation or anything. How does Jesus affect this? That's what really the whole series that we're doing in Philippians. How does Jesus change everything? So Paul says, let's bring God into this. The Lord is at hand, which is first to just say, bring him into the middle of it. But second, it's to say this. What does it mean that the Lord is at hand? I mean, I think in the middle of conflict, I think that has a dual face to it. I think one is kind of a wake-up call to say, hey, how would you be treating that person if Jesus was standing there? If Jesus was standing right here, how would you be treating that person? If Jesus was standing right here as you're gossiping about that person or talking about the issue, what would change about that? I think that's kind of one part of it. The other part of it, I think, is an encouraging thing to say, man, he's with you. The Lord's at hand. He's present. He's in the middle of this. There's hope. You're not left to yourself. I mean, we don't know how long Yodia and Sinki were fighting, but again, it was big enough that he put it into the letter. And so 
both of them as Christians, I'm sure, were kind of feeling, man, is this going to just go on forever? Am I always going to hate to see Sindhi? Am I always going to have to duck behind the pew and crawl under them? Am I always going to have to do that? Paul says the Lord's at hand, which I think is a wake-up call, but I also think it's, hey, he's in the middle of this. He cares for you. He's present. He's not letting you go. The Lord's at hand. Second thing Paul tells us is this. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. So why? Why is that an antidote to conflict? Why is that common? Rejoice in the Lord. How does that get somebody out of conflict? Well, here's what the Bible teaches us about conflict. This gets to the very heart of it. Why were they fighting? What was going on? I mean, I'm not talking about on the surface, but deeper. There's heart issues. There's things they want. There's desires they have. There's things that they say, if I have this, I'll be happy. If I have this, I'll have joy. If I have this, I'll be okay. And this person's in the way of that. See, the Bible says that our conflict comes from the desires within our heart that then become these demands. And then we wage war against one another. What did you want that someone else is in the way of? It might be respect. It might be comfort. I just want a chill day and you're jacking with that. It might be some actual thing that somebody's in the way of? What do you want? What do you desire? What do you think will bring you happiness and joy that somebody else is in the way of? See, that's where conflict comes from. It comes from our sources of joy that we have. This is where my joy will be, and this person's blocking it. And to say rejoice in the Lord is to say, well, okay, why? We'll get to that. All of this is a reminder that first and foremost, we have a broken relationship with God. Then a broken relationship with one another. Starts in the heart. It starts with God. So so why should we rejoice in the Lord? How do we rejoice in the Lord? Why? Why? What does that mean? To say rejoice in the Lord says there's something enjoyable about him. To say rejoice in Jesus says there's something to experience joy in about him, which is to point to everything Paul's been talking about, which is the gospel. See, Paul says, you're in conflict. You've got issues. And I want to now direct your attention away from yourself to Jesus and say rejoice in the Lord. Do you remember what he's done for you? See, we rejoice in the Lord when we remember and we experience the joy that he has had in us. Earlier, you know what Paul says? Paul says to both of them, your names have been written in the book of life. Your names have been written in the book of life. Which, what that means is God has a book in which he's put Yodia's name and he's put Sintke's name. 
And he said, you belong to me and I want life for you. I want you to experience life, joy. I want that for you. And so I went to the cross for you. See, to say rejoice in the Lord is a pointer. It's a reminder of the gospel, which is what God has done for us. That Jesus came into this earth, that God himself came into this earth when we were in conflict with him. Maybe you say, I'm not in conflict with God. Well, maybe not outright. It doesn't look like that. But we're all in conflict with God, either through our ignoring of him or just dismissing of him. I'll think about him later. Or outright rejection, either of those. That we're in conflict with God. But God doesn't leave it there. He doesn't sit on the opposite side of the universe. Instead, he comes to the earth in Jesus. And he says, I'm not okay with us being in conflict. I want you. I want your name in my book. I want life for you. I want joy for you. And so he comes in Jesus and he dies on the cross to take our sins of rejecting him. And then he resurrects to give us life. To put our names in the book of life. See, we can rejoice in Jesus because he has rejoiced and delighted in us and made us his own. See, when you're in a conflict with somebody, you're forgetting Jesus. You're forgetting what he's done. When you're impatient with someone, you're forgetting how patient God's been with you. When you're unforgiving towards someone, you're forgetting how much God has forgiven you. When you're just irritated by somebody's ignorance or stupidity, it's because you forget the way God treated you and your ignorance and stupidity. See, God put, if you're a Christian, God put your name in his book of life to say, I want joy for you. You belong to me. I I delight in you. You're mine. You know, some of the language Paul uses of you're my crown and you're my joy. I mean, that's, that's the same language God has for us. If you see that God has rejoiced in you, that leads you to rejoice in him, which then means your joy is in him and not in the preferences and not in the wants and not in the demands and not in the desires. It's in him, which then that changes conflict because someone isn't, they might be, disagreeing with you on something, but they're not messing with your joy. Do you see that God delights in you? Have you seen that? Tasted that? If you're a Christian, your name is in the book of life. That's reason to say, thank you, God. God has said, you're in my book. I care about you. And if you're not a Christian, not to be offensive, but because I love you and care about you, I would say this, your name's not in the book. But God wants it in the book. God wants you to have life and he wants you to have joy found through putting your trust and your faith in Jesus. Asking him to forgive you for your sin of rejecting him, ignoring him, dismissing him, and to then enter into relationship with him, life with him. So, what's the way out? It's to rejoice in God. It's to rejoice in Jesus. 
because we see that he has rejoiced in us so much in the cross. And that's what we remember when we take communion. We remember that Jesus had his blood shed, that he had his body broken so that he could give us life. See, our name's written in the book of life because he gave up his life. Our name is written in the book of life because he chose death. That's good news. That he substituted himself for us. And that's what we remember. And so as you take communion, if you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, take communion, become a Christian and take communion for the first time. But if you're a Christian, as you take communion, remember, God put my name in his book. And he rejoices in me because of Jesus. And pray and confess and then work that out in relationships you have, maybe even today. Okay, let me pray. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you that you have rejoiced in us, that you delight in us because of Jesus. Because Jesus gave us his life. Father, you look on us with delight. Because Jesus paid for our price of sin. Because he did that, you now look at us with pleasure and joy and delight. And you want good for us. You want life for us. So God, help us. Help everyone in this room to find our joy in you. To rejoice in you. And not our preferences and not our demands and not our desires and not the way we think things should be done and not not in everything going well, but let our joy be in you because you delight in us at the cost of your own life. Let us remember this, Lord Jesus, in your name.